Welcome to Ped Soup, the podcast that serves up topics throughout the world of pediatrics. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy, and on today's episode, we're going to spend our time on the adolescent end of the spectrum with some sexually transmitted infections. This is actually a perfect podcast topic because since we're audio only, this is the one format where you can learn about STDs with zero risk of seeing a picture of infected genitals. Even with only audio, we're obviously going to talk about sex some during this episode, so you might want to have your headphones handy in case there are other people around. The best way to manage any kind of infection is to either not get one or to catch it early, so we'll start with prevention and screening. As always, vaccines are great for prevention. Hepatitis A and B are technically sexually transmissible and are vaccinated against as part of the standard immunization schedule. HPV also fits under the umbrella of vaccine-preventable STDs, although sexual contact isn't the only way HPV is spread. There isn't a lot to go into about the disease itself. It's managed the same way wherever the warts show up, excision or cryotherapy. So this will be pretty much all we have to say about HPV. The HPV vaccine first became available in 2006, and at this point there are a few different formulations out there. The most important thing to know is that it is safe and effective, and multiple studies have shown that being vaccinated has no significant effect on sexual risk-taking behaviors. The kids aren't going extra wild because they know they're protected from HPV. It's recommended for everyone, boys and girls, starting at 11 or 12 years old, and people can start the series through age 21 for males and age 26 for females. Aside from preventing HPV, the best reason to get vaccinated is to reduce the risk of cancers that are linked to HPV. The vaccine covers the strains of HPV that have the strongest association with developing cancer, and while 10 to 12 years isn't enough time to definitively show a drop in the rates of associated cancers, we already know that the vaccine decreases the number of people who are HPV infected. A study published by Lori Markowitz and her colleagues in pediatrics in March 2016 reviewed nationwide HPV DNA screening data from 2003 to 2006 before vaccines were available, and 2009 to 2012. When they looked at the prevalence of HPV in girls aged 14 to 19, they found a 64% decrease in the four types of HPV covered by the vaccine, and no change in the types that weren't covered. Chemoprophylaxis, medication treatment, is another option that can help with prevention of a few diseases. There's been a lot in the news in the last year or two about pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP, for HIV. It seems to be a huge breakthrough in keeping the disease from spreading, but that's about as much as we're going to mention here. It's a little outside the scope of pediatrics and adolescent medicine, and it definitely deserves more time than we can give it here. Suppressive treatment for herpes simplex virus, or HSV, namely valacyclovir, is the other thing to mention for chemoprophylaxis. It helps reduce the chance of transmission, but someone has to already know they have HSV and take their medication regularly. That makes five diseases, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, HPV, HSV, and HIV, that have some specific intervention between vaccines and medications that can help keep them from spreading. For everything else, it's either education, abstinence, or condoms. Now that we've covered prevention, we can get into screening. First, of course you should test anyone who comes in with a specific or even generally related concern. When it comes to true screening, testing people who don't necessarily have symptoms, it can be more complicated. We'll cover the test when we talk about specific diseases. Right now, we'll stick to who to screen. Keep in mind there's some variability in the recommendations based on what organization you're getting your information from and the state you live in. 
We're going to use the most recent CDC guidelines from 2015, and because this is a pediatrics podcast, we'll only focus on the parts relevant to younger patients. The screening recommendations mostly depend on who the patient is and who they have sex with. Strictly heterosexual males get off easy. There isn't any strong recommendation for screening them if they're asymptomatic, although you can consider screening for gonorrhea and chlamydia in high-prevalence areas. The CDC recommends that men who have sex with other men be screened at least annually for chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, and more frequently depending on local prevalence rates and a few other factors. The recommendation isn't based on social stigma or anything like that. Studies have consistently shown higher rates of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis in men who have sex with men, which is the rationale for checking more often. For females, the recommendation is to universally screen everybody who is under 25 and sexually active once and to repeat screening when new risk factors, namely new partners, come around. Why screen asymptomatic females and not males? The stakes are higher. Even if they have no symptoms, women with gonorrhea or chlamydia are still at risk for developing chronic infections and pelvic inflammatory disease, which can lead to infertility. Infertility versus a screening test that takes less than 5 minutes to collect is a pretty easy decision when you're comparing risks and benefits. HIV is in a class of its own for screening. This is the only part of the episode where we're going to spend any real time on HIV. The clinical and management aspects deserve their own episode, but screening is worth mentioning. The CDC recommends one-time opt-out screening for everyone aged 13 to 64, regardless of risk factors. Opt-out screening means you tell the patient that you'll be checking for HIV unless they explicitly tell you they don't want to be tested. That's how seriously they take HIV detection. Unless the patient directly says, I don't want to find out, they're getting tested. After that first test, repeat screening all depends on risk factors. One more point before we start going over specific infections. We're going to focus on the genitourinary symptoms, but it's important to remember that genital-to-genital contact is not the only kind of sexual contact there is. Anywhere that fluids are exchanged is a potential site of infection, so get specific with your history and don't assume that a normal GU exam means no infection. We'll start our review of sexually transmitted infections with gonorrhea and chlamydia. Gonorrhea and chlamydia are the peanut butter and jelly of STDs. It's fine to make a peanut butter sandwich, but someone's going to ask you, why no jelly? And that's how it is with these two. If you test for just gonorrhea, someone will ask why you're skipping chlamydia. There's a high rate of co-infection, and the presentation for both is pretty similar, so we're combining them here too. Most patients with gonorrhea or chlamydia don't have any symptoms at all, which is a major reason why they're so easily spread. When symptoms are present in females, They can be pretty subtle, with some spotting in between periods or changes in vaginal discharge being most common. Males tend to have pain with urination along with penile discharge. Males can also present with epididymitis, which is pain, tenderness, and swelling in one testicle. Today, testing for gonorrhea and chlamydia is usually done with nucleic acid amplification testing, or NAT, collected from the suspected site of infection. For males, the most reliable and least invasive way to test is to collect a first void urine sample. This isn't like checking for a UTI where you want a midstream sample to test the bladder. In this case, your whole goal is to collect a sample of what's living in the urethra. Urethral swabs are an option, but it's invasive and painful and doesn't give you any better information. For females, it can be trickier. Nobody's too shy about collecting a throat swab, but things get more uncomfortable when you talk about samples from below the belt. 
In 2008, the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology published a study from a group led by Dr. Junyong Fang at the University of Maryland that evaluated three different sample collection methods for adolescent girls aged 12 to 18. Provider-collected cervical swab, first void urine, and self-collected vaginal swab. They did their study during a five-year period and over 1,000 different screening encounters, so they were working with a good amount of information. They found that when you compared the results of any two tests, they agreed anywhere from 97 to more than 99% of the time. First void urine was the least sensitive method, but still came in at over 88% sensitive, and self-collected swabs had equal or greater sensitivity compared to provider collected. What does that mean? You don't have to make your patient go through a pelvic exam if the only reason you're doing it is to collect a sample. Testing a first voided urine or self-collected swab is a very reliable way to get the same information. So what do you do once you get a positive test? With gonorrhea and chlamydia, the answer is almost always a single dose each of ceftriaxone and azithromycin. Strictly speaking, you can treat isolated chlamydia with azithromycin alone, but co-infection rates are high enough and the risk of giving a dose of ceftriaxone is low enough that it's recommended to do both. For gonorrhea, it's actually recommended to give both medications, even if it looks like there's only gonorrhea present, because of increasing resistance rates. If a patient has an allergy or can't take azithromycin for some reason, it's an option to give a one-week course of doxycycline. It's going to have to be a pretty convincing reason, though, since single-dose therapy is so much more reliable in terms of completing the treatment. The one exception worth mentioning is epididymitis. In this case, the single dose of ceftriaxone stays the same, but the recommendation is for 10 days of treatment with doxycycline. Before we get too far from gonorrhea and chlamydia, we should also talk about pelvic inflammatory disease. While the vast majority of cases are sexually transmitted, PID is defined as any infection of the uterus, fallopian tubes, or ovaries. It can cover a broad spectrum of clinical presentations, but the most consistent symptom is pain in the lower abdomen or pelvis. Abnormal spotting, particularly heavy periods, and changes in vaginal discharge should also get your attention, but pain is the main thing that separates PID from an uncomplicated infection. There isn't a gold standard diagnostic test for PID. It's mostly based on clinical findings and history. If you suspect PID, you should do a bimanual exam every time. Pain or tenderness with cervical motion or palpation of the uterus or adnexal areas is anywhere from 65 to 90% sensitive for PID. You order the full panel of STI tests, gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis, HIV, and wet mount, along with a pregnancy test, but you don't have to wait for the results before you start treatment. There's a really low threshold to treat for PID because, like we mentioned earlier, untreated PID can cause scarring and infertility. The decision point is whether or not the patient needs to be hospitalized for IV antibiotics. If the patient has severe clinical symptoms or signs of a pelvic abscess or any other condition that might require surgery, you should definitely admit. Other indications are pregnancy or a failure of oral antibiotics, whether it's because they didn't take them, couldn't keep them down, or they just didn't work. If your patient qualifies for outpatient management, it's a single dose of ceftriaxone along with two weeks of doxycycline. So to recap, if you suspect or confirm an uncomplicated infection with gonorrhea or chlamydia, the standard treatment is one dose of ceftriaxone and one dose of azithromycin. It's effective, and you don't have to rely on the patient taking an extended course of antibiotics to clear the infection. If you have a more complicated outpatient problem, namely epididymitis or PID, you keep the single dose of ceftriaxone and give anywhere from 10 to 14 days of doxycycline. Okay, that was a lot of gonorrhea and chlamydia. We've got two more big topics to cover, but they'll both go a lot quicker. 
HSV, herpes simplex virus, comes in two major types, HSV1 and HSV2. Historically speaking, HSV1 is more commonly associated with oral herpes, cold sores, and HSV2 is responsible for genital infections, but there's plenty of cross-pollination. HSV is most likely to spread during an active outbreak, but as you know from the verbal fine print on Valtrex commercials, it's possible to spread the virus even without any symptoms. Clinically, HSV presents with vesicles and redness at the site of infection. When these vesicles pop and ulcerate, the fluid that comes out is the main vector for spreading the disease. HSV hurts. If you're taking a test, look out for patients who have the classic lesions and describe itching, burning, or stinging pain that's worse with contact. Without treatment, eruptions typically last anywhere from two to four weeks. The good news is that after the first outbreak, the lesions are less likely to be symptomatic. The bad news is there are going to be more outbreaks, symptomatic or not. The virus establishes a latent infection in neurons and flares up from time to time, causing new lesions to form, which then heal up before the cycle repeats again. There's a ton of individual variation in how frequent outbreaks are, what symptoms are present, and how severe they are. Diagnosis of HSV is mostly clinical. The classic lesions and symptoms are a good guide. You can confirm the diagnosis with lab testing, which today usually means PCR of the affected area. PCR is much faster than the old method of viral culture, but you don't need to wait for results to start treatment for a first-time infection. Starting treatment with an antiviral medication, acyclovir, valacyclovir, or famcyclovir, within 72 hours of when the lesions appear in a primary infection, can decrease the duration and severity of symptoms and has a similar effect with recurrences. Antivirals are also a good option for long-term therapy, but the best regimen depends on the patient. Chronic therapy, taking a medication every day, can decrease the recurrence rate and chances for transmission, making it a good option for people who have frequent outbreaks or whose partners don't have HSV. If your patient has recurrences pretty rarely, their symptoms are minor, their partner has HSV already, or any combination of those three, Episodic treatment, taking medication only once an outbreak starts in an effort to shorten the duration of symptoms, might be the best route. The last disease I want to cover in this episode is syphilis. Historically speaking, syphilis is a big deal. People tended to refer to it as a disease that came from whatever country they didn't like at the time. The Russians called it the Polish disease, Italians called it the French disease, and the French called it the Italian disease. Syphilis was a major cause of morbidity and social stigma, mostly because of the facial lesions and neurologic impairments that are late complications in untreated disease. We won't get into that here, but you can do an image search for untreated syphilis if you're curious and want to see something you can never ever unsee. A lot of historical figures were rumored to have syphilis, including Christopher Columbus and Vladimir Lenin, although it's impossible to say for sure because late disease can present in so many different ways. Al Capone was diagnosed with syphilis when he went to prison in 1932, and he developed syphilitic dementia. When he died in 1947 at 48 years old, his doctor said he had the mentality of a 12-year-old. I was all set to say that syphilis was a disease on the decline and mostly interesting for the history, but it's actually getting worse. According to the CDC's most recent STD surveillance report, the incidence of syphilis in the U.S. has been going up ever since 2000, and in 2015, there were almost 24,000 cases of primary and secondary syphilis reported. So while the history is interesting, it's something you still need to know about. Clinically, syphilis is divided into two stages, early and late. We're going to skip over late syphilis. It's less common now that we have effective treatments, and it's probably not something we need to cover for pediatrics review. 
We'll also save congenital syphilis for an episode about congenital and neonatal infections. Early syphilis, which includes both primary and secondary syphilis, is where we're going to spend all our time. Primary syphilis can be asymptomatic, but whether you're taking a test or examining a patient, you're looking for a chancre. A chancre is a painless lesion that develops at the site of infection. It starts as a papule, then ulcerates before healing over. They look like they should be incredibly painful, but they're not, and between the lack of symptoms, the possibility of not noticing the lesion at all, and being embarrassed, people sometimes don't get treated, which leads to more people getting infected with syphilis. If you're taking a test, I can't stress enough how important it is that the chancre doesn't hurt. If you see the words painless and ulcer together in a question, it's probably safe to cross out any answers that aren't related to syphilis. Secondary syphilis is a little trickier, but based entirely on my anecdotal experience, it doesn't come up often in patient care or on tests. It can develop anywhere from weeks to months after the chancre shows up, and can have pretty nonspecific symptoms. The most characteristic symptom, which means most likely to show up on a test, is a rash. It can have any appearance, but the classic secondary syphilis rash is a diffuse maculopapular eruption with red or reddish-brown lesions that covers the palm and soles. For diagnosing syphilis, it's all serologic testing. There are a lot of different algorithms, but the classic one, and again, classic means most likely to be tested, is to start with the rapid plasma reagent, or RPR, test, and then confirm with FTA-ABS. The treatment of syphilis has a really interesting history, which is honestly more interesting than the way it's treated now. If you're not at all curious about the historical treatments, and I promise it's at least worth a listen, you can fast forward through the next 30 seconds. Still with me? Excellent. For the first 400 or so years that syphilis was a known disease, the treatment was mercury. Drinking it, rubbing it on your skin, vaporizing it into a steam to breathe in, or injecting it directly into your bladder. Over four centuries, people came up with a lot of ways to get mercury into their systems. Presumably it worked. There aren't a lot of randomized control trials out there. But even if it wiped out your syphilis, mercury is still really toxic. The next generation of treatments was arsenic-based which was slightly better because of advances in chemistry, but there's a reason people kept working to find new treatments. In the late 19th and early 20th century, doctors had noticed that patients with syphilis, who contracted another disease that caused high fevers, would sometimes be cured of their syphilis. It worked often enough that they started looking at inducing fever as an option for treatment, and eventually landed on malaria. At the time, malaria could be pretty effectively treated with quinine, so the idea was to inoculate the patient with malaria, let the fevers run long enough to wipe out the syphilis, and then treat the malaria with quinine. This sounds bizarre, and it is, and it was only used in extreme and late-stage cases. They weren't giving malaria to anyone with a shanker. But it worked! It worked so well for late-stage disease that Julius Wagner Jorig, whose name I apologize for mangling, won the 1927 Nobel Prize in Medicine for using malaria to treat neurosyphilis. Shortly before World War II, penicillin was discovered, and nothing has changed in the treatment of syphilis since then. The dosing and duration of treatment can vary based on the presentation and the patient, but if the question is syphilis, the answer is always penicillin. Penicillin therapy is generally considered to be safer than mercury, arsenic, and malaria-based regimens, and there have been no signs of resistance developing in over 60 years. It's so effective that if a patient with a penicillin allergy has syphilis, the best answer and I'm speaking directly to test takers right now, is usually to do penicillin desensitization and treat them with penicillin. And that's it. We've reached the finish line in our trip through STDs. 
We covered a lot of ground, so we'll recap some take-home points. If you have concern for a patient, you're never wrong to screen, especially for gonorrhea and chlamydia, and the CDC has some readily available guidelines for you. You should also keep a low threshold for diagnosing and treating PID. The treatment is pretty benign, and the consequences of missing the diagnosis can be irreversible. Finally, always think syphilis if you see a painless ulcer, and once you have a diagnosis, the first choice for treatment is penicillin, even if the patient is allergic. If you liked today's episode, a career in adolescent medicine might be for you, but also please give us a rating on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you have any comments or if there's something you'd like to hear about in a future episode, you can email us directly at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.